Well, hello, all you marvelous manatees out there. Welcome back for another week of A Little Greener, your favorite podcast all about nature, conservation, and sustainability. I'm one of your hosts, Sarah. And I'm Casey. And we're very glad to have you all back for another week. Casey, how are you doing this week? I think we're both pretty beat this week. <laughs> yes, we are. <laughs> so if we feel a little lower energy, we apologize. It's, or if uh, we say things that uh, are a little more off the wall than usual this week. <laughs> Uh, Sarah, here's a story. I don't think I told you I was making Turkey burgers, you know, a non-beef alternative Excellent. and I turned on my grill and, um, it wasn't igniting. So I used the long stem lighter guy and, uh, and it burned off the front part of my hair. So what? I've been hiding it really well. Yeah. It's, you can see it's really short right there. Oh, no. Yes. So that's just, that's my, how my week's going. How's yours? <laughs> You did hide it really well. I'm glad you're okay. Yes. Yeah, me too. I lost two eyebrow hairs and one eyelash. Oh my gosh. But that's pretty good, I guess. My my mom once had a pretty bad one when she opened the grill after lighting it. So uh so yeah, that's how my week's going. You want to share anything from your week? I feel like my week has gone just fine. Hey, that's good. That. Uh, no, it's I haven't had anything crazy happen. It's just been a busy, busy work week. Uh, it's the busy time of year for myself and Casey at work. So that's all I have. All, I, all of my hair. Uh, I don't have any that's injured good. appendages. So can't say the same MRI and, right. tomorrow. <laughs> uh, yeah. So gosh, I guess I feel like I'm coming off pretty well. Also, uh, I said last week, my cone flowers are still alive. I'm pretty sure one of my milkweed plants is still alive Yeah, as well, defying all odds <laughs> for the pretty much nothing that I've done, done to care for it. Uh, it, it does still seem to be growing. So that's exciting. That underdog milkweed coming through native plants for the win. <laughs> they're, they're going to be hardier than, than those non-natives. So Sarah, do you want to remind us what our homework was for last week? I, 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 I do, if I can think of it. Uh, so we talked about bats last week. We so sure we, your, your homework for the week was to, to find your bats, whether that was just sort of virtually to find your bats, to learn a little bit more about bats that live around you. But then also potentially, if you can see if you can spot some bats in the wild. So that was your standard challenge if that's what we were going with yes and then your beast mode challenge was to do something to help bats whatever that was for your capabilities your interest level um you know so whether that was supporting a conservation organization or putting up a bat box or whatever the case may be to see if you could find a way to an, an action that you could take to help bats did you did you find your bats casey uh you know, I wasn't able to see them outside, although I did look, I decided to look up the little brown bat, which mm -hmm. like, what a good little name, you know, this is, this is a little brown bat yeah. and it's one of the micro bats and it's one that's native here in Indiana. And probably one of the more fun facts that I found out about that is on average, they live about 6.5 years, but they had one individual that lived to be 34. And I always find that Dang. mind blowing. Yeah. is like those guys who just beat all the odds, um, that are built into their lives. So I thought that was pretty cool. 
amazing. Yeah. Well, good for you. Well done. I have to say, I actually didn't do a whole lot new with this challenge yeah. for me because I it it was mainly things that I have done or did in preparation for that episode. So I didn't do a whole lot extra with my bat assignment. However, I did reach out to the Indiana DNR. They had a page about volunteering for bat projects. So there was an option to potentially volunteer, like driving a route to listen for bats basically, or setting up equipment like on your property if you have bats and so I'd reached out but I unfortunately didn't hear anything back so I didn't get to do that I may have missed uh, it may have already been a little bit too late in the season to to start off with that too so I may may try again some other time um, because I was kind of excited about that but uh, otherwise I've just still been enjoying my bats in in my own backyard I kind of want to get a little I don't even know what they're called but a little device so I've, we talked about how we can't hear the echolocation calls but um, you can get a little device that will sort of put those sounds in a frequency that we can hear and I kind of want to do that um, and I'm not sure I'd have to look into it to see if that would be helpful at all in identifying what kind of bats I'm seeing. Yeah. So you, you're admiring in the yes. night sky. I'm guessing based on what I've read, just because it's, it's the most common that they're probably big brown bats. Um, I, I read somewhere, somebody referred to big brown bats as like the cockroaches of the bat world. No, having for, to for, do with you. Their, for me, that's not a great description, right, for but, you. <laughs> but it was just talking about their, their prevalence and how, uh, how common they are I think so so that would be my guess if I had to take a guess but I would love to know for sure what they are and I am still looking into putting up a bat box I just I don't have a great place to put it so I would have to install like a post to put it on mm -hmm. and which probably means that I would have to hire somebody to install a post for me um so I didn't do that but I'm I am still kind of thinking about how how maybe I can get a bat box put up because that would just be so cool if bats were to find it and then to be able to watch them come out every night I would love yeah so just more more enjoyment of bats from me this week excellent I mean that's what we're all about we're about conservation and sustainability and nature so it's yep. always good to hammer that nature aspect home because that's what makes this so enjoyable and that's what hopefully can help inspire you in addition to all the human impacts things like this have yeah that's exciting love it and we also got another listener email over the last week and I really liked this one so this was some feedback again on the episode that we did several weeks back on the water cycle so you can check that one out if you haven't listened to that but I got a listener email um, actually from family, my sister Ellie emailed and had a couple of cool or a couple of good points to make uh, one really cool one and one uh, one something something that I didn't address in that water cycle episode was the issue with microfibers. So we didn't really talk about microplastics or microfibers in terms of uh, water pollution for that particular episode, but it is definitely something we will address at some point in, in future episodes of A Little Greener. So that was a really great thing to bring up. And especially as someone who 
at least occasionally runs and has a lot of uh, synthetic clothing material where these microfibers come from. That's definitely something that I want to brush up on and talk a little more about that. But then the other really cool thing that Ellie brought our attention to that I hadn't heard about was we talked a little bit in that water cycle episode about the water crisis in Flint, Michigan, and she shared this website of a a glasses brand. I believe it's pronounced Genesee. It's G-E-N-U-S-E-E, which I think is maybe a little bit of a play on Genesee County, which is where Flint, Michigan is located. But they make these sunglasses out of recycled water bottles that are were associated with with that water crisis. So they are kind of trying to divert that pollution and kind of close the loop on those plastic water bottles, which I think is amazing. And so they're locally based. You can get on their website. It's just genesee.com and you can read a little bit about what their efforts are and how they're taking that plastic pollution and turning it into a usable product. They're hiring local people, working on rebuilding the economy. Super cool and definitely something to check out. They do both sunglasses, uh, reading glasses, and prescription glasses. So if you're in the market for a new pair of glasses, check them out. And I think that was was really, really cool. And I hadn't come across that at all in my research. So thanks, Ellie. Thanks for listening. And thanks for sharing. We appreciate it. Yeah, we appreciate all of your emails. I guess this is a good time to say, if you haven't already, smash that subscribe button, as Josh would say. Uh, <laughs> give us likes, give us uh, reviews, ratings, if you feel like it. That always helps new people find podcasts. And if you're interested in sending us an email, you can send us an email at a little greener podcast at gmail.com. So we love to hear from you guys. And Sarah, I have our get to know you question. Have you ever helped an animal cross the road? I have. I, there've been a couple of times with turtles, I think is probably the most common one. So there've been a couple of times where I've hopped out to help a turtle make it all the way across to where it was going. And then they're just random. I mean, like a couple of weeks ago, I remember I just kind of had to stop traffic a little bit to let some geese cross the road. How did you go about that? Tell us. Oh, I mean, it wasn't anything dramatic. It wasn't like, it, it was not a super high traffic. I just had to stop my car. So I just kind of used my car to to block traffic. I didn't have to actually get out or anything like that, Um, but to just let a group of geese cross. And there were times in Florida when I would have to do that for sandhill cranes. Cool. (laughs) Always kind of fun where they would just kind of meander out into the road. And so just kind of, you know, adjust your car a little bit so that um, other motorists can see what's going on and let them cross. I can't, that's, those are the, the only ones that I can think of. Nothing, nothing like major. Honestly, like I am prepared to help an animal cross I know the road. You would be. <laughs> I, most of my animal experiences have been like trying to help dogs get out of the road. I guess that's Stray probably Stray dogs the best. find Casey. Stray dogs are just magnetically attracted yes. to my home yes. um, and to me in general. So I have tried to like get dogs out of the street and things like that, but I've never actually helped an animal cross the road, even though I feel like, like I'm ready. Okay. Turtle, like I'm ready to help you out. And I feel like if 
if someone finds them, they're often contacting my fiance, Andrew, because he has always good advice for that. Sarah, yeah. do you have something to add? I just had another random one pop into my head and my parents, if my parents are listening, they might have to correct my memory on this one. Can't remember where we were at, but there were bison. Now we of course didn't help the bison cross the road, but this is just <laughs> an animal road crossing story that just popped into my mind. Yeah. So we were stopped and these bison were crossing the road and there was one bison that was injured for some no. reason that was like limping and was kind of lagging behind. And literally one of the other bison like stopped and came back and like waited for this other bison to cross the road. And then they walked off. That is my memory of what happened. Parents, you'll have to tell me if that's an incorrect memory, but I have a very strong memory of that happening and being a really cool thing that we witnessed. Again, yeah. I mean, our, our car was stopped to watch. Can't really say we were helping anything cross the road, but it was cool. Yeah, it really I think, happened. I mean, we do see a lot of wildlife along road lines, right? Like that's a, a main way that you might end up seeing wildlife you live across. Or like when I've gone to national parks, we spent a lot of time on the roadsides and that's where I've seen my only wild bear and mm. a bighorn sheep is driving along the road. So today we're actually going to talk about roads and their impact on wildlife. So stick around for that for our main body, but first we're going to get a review from Sarah. All right. Welcome back everybody. So we've got a documentary review for you today. So this is actually a film that I came across after Casey's review of a recent documentary, Seaspiracy. I can't remember what episode that one was on, Casey, but if you haven't heard that one, it was pretty early on. You can go back and listen to our first few episodes. Casey, Episode four. Perfect. Casey did a, a great review of Seaspiracy, which got a lot of, uh, that documentary got a lot of media attention. So Casey kind of addressed some of the issues with that particular documentary. And so it was already something that I knew I wasn't necessarily going to be interested in watching, but in reading some other information about that documentary, I came across some lists of things to watch instead of watching Seaspiracy. And this documentary, another Netflix documentary called Chasing Coral was one of the ones on the list. So um, it's a few years old. I believe this came out in 2017. So a few years old, but it is still on Netflix. You can still find it on there. And so that's kind of what, what I'm going to talk about today. What I My caveat for this review is a couple of things, as Casey and I have talked about, is a long week. My brain wasn't necessarily uh, entirely prepared and focused to sit down and watch a film. I'm also not great with documentaries sometimes. I really sort of have to be in the mood to sit and focus. I think because I work in this environmental education field, sometimes watching a nature documentary feels 
a little like work in that I feel pressure <laughs> somehow. Like I have to retain all of this. I have to remember all of this and dissect every little piece of it. So I tried to make myself just kind of relax and not take notes and just watch and enjoy this, but I, or to see if I would enjoy it. But I do feel like uh, maybe I was a little more disconnected from it. Um, and that didn't necessarily reflect on the documentary itself and more just my state of mind <laughs> this week. But I think yeah. uh, there were a lot of things that I did really like about this documentary. In in Casey's review of Seaspiracy, one of the things that she talked about is just how many issues Seaspiracy mentioned right Casey but didn't really dive into so you just kind of get a little bit about a lot of different things which is not necessarily helpful and Chasing Coral doesn't do that at all Chasing Coral is very focused on one specific issue so this documentary is about a, a crew of folks that are working to document coral bleaching impacts and how that relates to um, tying that into climate change. And, and um, so basically what coral bleaching is, is with oceans getting warmer, that causes stress for these coral. And coral has symbiotic algae called zooxanthellae that live inside of it. When the temperatures get too warm and this coral gets stressed, they expel this zooxanthellae. And, and basically that causes them to lose their coloration and then they have this white appearance. That doesn't automatically mean that they, that coral is dead, but any sort of prolonged stress that coral is not going to be able to recover from. Yeah. One of the things that our friend Diane once asked me, like, why would that be the response that coral has to, uh, to stress would be to basically spit out all of the things that actually give it nutrients, but at warmer temperatures, algae actually metabolize faster and have more of a waste product that they're harming the corals with basically. So it is that, that symbiotic relationship has a balance that's being impacted by new temperatures. Yeah. So this documentary set out basically to to document that those coral bleaching events and they talk a little bit about how this came about there are a few um, sort of main characters in this documentary um including one gentleman who's a former like ad executive but just a, a passionate diver and became you know interested in kind of documenting this world that so many people didn't get to see, kind of documenting these reefs, sort of like a Google Maps type thing, you know, where you could do the Google Street View for, for coral reefs. So he started off looking at that, um, but then it became this project to really, you know, as he started learning more about these coral bleaching uh, events and the impacts of climate change on coral reefs, it sort of became this other thing to, okay, how do we, how do we convey the seriousness of this to everyday people who don't dive and who don't get to to see these things so a lot throughout the course of this documentary you're learning their story you're going through kind of the challenges that they face in trying to capture these coral bleaching events so figuring out how to set up the the cameras and how are we going to, you know, keep these lenses clean underneath the water and, you know, all of those types of things. And along the way, you learn a little bit about coral and why coral is important and why coral reefs are such an important um, ecosystem. So it's as much about that for like the first hour of the documentary, like you're learning about coral and you're going on this journey with them. And I think 
I think the journey was really interesting. I think because I'm someone who is already aware of what coral is and how important it is and, and knowing that these bleaching events are, are happening, I think I felt a little more disconnected. The last half hour, I, I did find personally a fairly impactful. So you do get to see some of the results. And even, you know, as they're talking about this, this whole time, getting to see some of the side-by-side -side shots and the going back and forth of specific areas of coral that had been bleached and not recovered and had ended up dying was actually surprisingly impactful for me. So I thought that was really good. And then kind of seeing the emotional responses of some of the people involved. So one of the standouts for me was a guy named, and forgive me if I'm mispronouncing his name, but Zach Rago, I think R-A-G-O is his last name. And it, it, it seems that I'm not alone uh, as I think he stood out to a lot of people. He's a self-described coral nerd. Um, and he came on board actually as somebody, he was like a camera technician basically. So he'd worked with an organization that was kind of developing these underwater cameras, um, but he'd worked in the aquarium industry and just loves coral and, you know, has a degree in the environmental sciences and all of that. Um, but to kind of see him, you know, get to travel to the Great Barrier Reef to see this amazing place that he's always dreamed of going to, to basically document it dying, um, you know, and seeing his truly emotional response to this, I, I thought was really impactful as well. So he was a great piece of this documentary. And then, yeah, like I said, just visually, there were some beautiful, beautiful shots So beautiful shots of the healthy coral reefs, the visuals of the healthy coral side by side with that same area dead um, was, was really impactful. And, you know, getting to see the emotional response of some folks who have spent their lives studying coral as well, I thought were, was really good. So I thought that it focused really well on one issue. There was no debate about climate change or anything like that. It was just presenting the information, specifically what's going on with the coral. And then it, it does end on a positive, which I think is important, or at least it tries to. And so it ends with some of the the folks talking about how, you know, we can still change this. There's still time to change what we're doing. Coral can recover from this. It's, it's hard as a scientist sometimes to see all of this happening, um, but we can still change. But I would say then there wasn't really a call to action per se. So it did at the end kind of talk about, you know, countries and cities that are trying to cut their their carbon emissions. And then there was directives that they you to go to their website to learn more about what you can do. So they have an action area on their official website. Um, but it it was a little bit interesting to me that so we've we've talked about this, we've showed you what the issue is, you feel emotionally invested. Great, there's still time to change it. I sort of I sort of wanted a little more and granted it's a tough thing, right? When you're talking about climate change, it's tough to say here's a specific individual action that, that you can do. So I know that that's a challenging thing, but um, it did maybe fall a little bit flat there for me. But overall, I mean, especially, you know, Casey, after listening to, to some of the issues with Seaspiracy, um, I, I didn't have those, those issues with this one. I do think that 
it was a pretty clear, good overview of the issues and an interesting story and um, had some good emotional connections. And you can watch that on Netflix, right? Correct. Yep. It's still available on Netflix. Awesome. Well, thanks, Sarah. Thanks for that review. I, I agree that sometimes when I'm at home trying to enjoy things, I tend to stray towards the like untamed Romania is like the most (laughs) recent one that I watched and it had like a lot of nature docs, but I do struggle sometimes to try and get invested in things like, I know this is going to be about coral bleaching because it is emotionally stressful to like constantly barrage yourself with that. But I'm glad that this is a quality documentary. Do you think it's good for people who aren't very familiar with the issue? Do you think it's aimed at that sort of audience? I think that's the audience that needs to see it, honestly. Okay. Like I, I, it's hard for me to put myself in that mindset when I'm watching it too. It's hard for me to sort of think, okay, if I weren't in this, if I weren't already somewhat exposed, how would this be coming across to me? But I think so. Like, I think that it keeps things at a a basic enough level. And I, I think that the journey that they take in the actual, like making of this documentary and getting the footage and all of that, I think is interesting enough to people that, you know, even if they're not super, you know, necessarily nature passionate, that they're still going to be invested from, from that angle. So I think so. I think that this would be accessible to folks who are not super familiar. Awesome. So if you guys want to check that out, you can find it on Netflix. Thanks for your review, Sarah. Yeah. We'll be back soon with our main body for roads and wildlife. Well, welcome back, everyone, to the main body segment of our episode. Today, we are talking about wildlife and roads. Um, roads are something that probably most of our listeners live like adjacent <laughs> to. Um, and in fact, most of the U.S. lives pretty adjacent to a pretty major road. Um, and I tried to find worldwide statistics and we're going to go with lots of worldwide examples today, but honestly, guys, it's a little bit hard to quantify all the roads in the entire world. So here in the U S we know we have over 4 million miles of roads. Yeah. (laughs) Um, so these miles, yes, it's a lot of miles and of course roads are important, right? They connect us from one place to another. A lot of times when we're kind of weighing decisions on whether or not to build a new road, especially in areas that don't have a lot of them to begin with. Sometimes it's about connecting people to really vital resources like Mm -hmm. hospitals and food distribution. So we're going to talk about some not so great impacts that roads have, but it's also important to recognize that like we would not be where we are today without a transportation system. Yeah. (laughs) I use roads to come to work every day. Like it's that that's just part of our lives. Um, and that's something we're in a balance. Sorry, go for it. No, I was just gonna say again, as a person who doesn't care for air travel, (laughs) I I need my roads to connect me to all of the places that I want to visit. (laughs) Yeah totally necessary for our current way of living. Of course, you know, alternative transportation could have other impacts, but also 
we got a lot of cars going on. Anyway, this one's about the roads themselves. It's actually not about cars. And roads make up about 1% of the U.S. land mass. So we talked about worldwide urban areas and roads comprise about 1% of the world's habitable land. But here in the U.S., obviously, we're a little bit more urbanized than some other areas. And so roads themselves, just paved areas, uh, make up 1% of our land mass. But because they have lots of impacts on wildlife and our land, uh, they actually impact about 20% of the land in the U.S. So 1% of the land is roads, but off the edge of those, we're impacting up to 20% of the land in the U.S. Yes. I saw that statistic early on and I'm like, that's I don't even know how to quantify it. But as I was going through my research, I was like, oh, actually, I really want to talk about that. That's a pretty impressive statistic. So today we're going to talk about uh, several different impacts of roads. I'm sure we could go more in depth into a lot of different ones. But question for you, Sarah, what are threats that are created by roads? Well, I mean, we see roadkill. (laughs) So roadkill, right? I bet you everybody has a traumatic roadkill memory. I have several like traumatic roadkill memories. I won't go in detail, but they're upsetting. Yeah. So there is that. I mean, we Mm -hmm. talked, we opened the episode by talking about helping animals cross the road. Sometimes animals don't make it across. So that would be one major impact. Roads can also be, you know, for us, they are a way to get from one place to another, but for wildlife, they can actually be preventing them from getting from one place to another. So if you have a, you know, major highway, something like that, there are going to be animals that aren't able to cross that. And so that splits apart their habitat, habitat fragmentation is what we call that. So that would be another one. Um, we talked about a little bit, I, I think in the water cycle episode, probably about how those paved areas can lead to runoff and water pollution. So that would be another thing where taking away that sort of natural ground filter and having these paved areas where water's just going to run off. Um, those would be the big things that I can think of off the top of my head. Yeah, those are all part of their impacts. We also have to think about noise pollution, which we did an episode oh, about. Yeah, I should have thought of that yeah. one. Whoops. Um, <laughs> our traffic, uh, also light pollution as well, which we'll talk a little bit about. And then in the U.S., this is less of an issue because we are so urbanized. But in other parts of the world, when we build new roads, mm. we sometimes are giving people access to areas that were too remote for them to really access by themselves before. And that includes extractive industries. So mm-hmm. like if a if there's a logging road built, what we find is once the road is built, more people are more likely to set up settlements along the road, even if that wasn't what it was initially there for. And it gives people access to these areas where wildlife may have been once protected, but now could be poached or killed for meat or come in more conflict with humans. So that's less of an issue here, but in other parts of the road, that's definitely an issue. Historically, roads used to run across, like around with the landscape. So if you had a river, your road was going with the river. Mm -hmm. Um, But now we have better infrastructure. We're actually crossing over and through a lot of natural geographic variations and habitat. So we're actually in some ways being harder on our environment because of these things, in addition to having more and more cars. So of course, the first thing that probably pops to mind is roadkill, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Again, traumatic roadkill stories. (laughs) So so question for you, Sarah, what animal do you most frequently see as roadkill? Uh, 
probably around here raccoons maybe i feel like i see a lot of raccoons squirrels actually sometimes opossums although i don't feel like i see them as frequently one of the research articles i i saw said you probably have seen more dead opossums than you have seen live opossums and that was very sad for me but it's true yeah i that's one of the first roadkill memories that i have uh, is is of an opossum won't go into it but um yeah and then i mean if if i am more on a road trip of course you see a lot of deer but i would see here in say here around the city raccoons might be what i see most often honestly yeah, I tried to look and see, like, is there a U.S. animal that is most roadkilled? Um, but it seems like a lot of a roadkill statistics are pretty much split up by state. Hmm. So there's not a lot of good, like, overall quantifying things. But raccoons are definitely one of them. They said basically the hyperabundant are obviously more likely sure. to come across. So squirrels, um, lots of squirrels in my neighborhood for sure. And back in Pennsylvania where I'm from, deer are a huge issue. Mm-hmm. Um, because we have a really big population and a lot of kind of forested and open areas where we have a lot of white-tailed deer. So uh, it is estimated that one to two billion vertebrates in the U.S. alone are killed as roadkill every year. It's insane. (laughs) Um, What we did find is that during the pandemic with less of us on the road, they also found that there was a decrease in roadkill. So that's kind of cool. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But that's a lot. Obviously, um, one to two billion vertebrates. When I said that number to my fiance, he said, how are there animals <laughs> at all? <laughs> um, but we can collide with these animals. Most of these animals are so small that they're just immediately killed by, by being hit by cars. Um, but some of them are large enough to also do damage to us. So we should care about this, not just from an animal perspective, but over 200 people a year in the United States are killed in vehicle collisions with animals, especially things. Yeah. Especially things like deer Deer. and elk and moose that we have here. Um, and in general, 5% of vehicle collisions can be attributed to animals crossing the road. Mm. So they actually found that the number of motor vehicle accidents in the U S over like, I want to say the 1990s to like the 2010s stayed about the same. There's same amount of, of motor vehicle accidents, but the percentage that are attributed to wildlife is much higher. So it used to be like 200,000 crashes a year. Now it's like 300,000. So it's actually a 50% increase. And of course yeah. I did not write down those dates, but, um, <laughs> but yeah, so it is actually like, maybe we're being safer drivers in other ways, but wildlife are still increasingly being killed. One study in Canada suggested that we lose 9.3 billion butterflies, moths and butterflies, and 24 billion bees. 24 billion bees. How are there even bees? Who even knows? (laughs) But I mean, you think about like every bug that splats on your windshield. Right. Is roadkill. I have a question. I don't know how. I don't know if I'll be able to answer. No, I just like, is that how they got this did they just like count dead bugs on people's windshields not windshields actually they counted them that they found along the stretch of the highway so these are ones that have like are large enough that they generally bounced off people's cars and yeah they were collecting just like hundreds and hundreds of bees and ended up being thousands and thousands of bees so of course this this 
is extrapolated data sure. from one yeah, area absolutely. in Canada. So like, we can't say like for sure where those butterflies are and all of that, but it is absurd. Yeah. <laughs> and those are just bees and butterflies. And we'll kind of talk a little bit about why they might be around the road so much, but another su- study suggested that collisions with cars kill 3% of migrating monarchs in a major migration corridor for the Eastern population. So they did a study in Texas And there's basically a central funnel that the butterflies are returning up from Mexico and the Eastern population goes through this area. And so up to 3% of them can be killed in car accidents, not car accidents. They don't care about monarchs. The cars are much bigger, but they're killed by cars. Yeah. So, um, so I never thought about that. So obviously like um, here in the U S if you're not familiar, our monarch butterflies are on the steep decline. And much of that has to do with habitat loss due to, uh, milkweed, which is their only, uh, host plant as caterpillars being exterminated within the U S but man, when you've got endangered species, little things add up mm-hmm. and road mortality is listed as a major cause of concern for 21 threatened or endangered species in the u.s wow so um things like florida panthers houston toads all have to deal with crossing roads and they cross roads for a variety of reasons so that sort of also leads us to our next issue which is habitat fragmentation and degradation and sarah i was wondering if you could define these terms for us you kind of touched on habitat fragmentation yeah so we talked about habitat fragmentation a little bit but that's i mean it's basically what it sounds like fragmentation right breaking something up into smaller pieces so that's what habitat fragmentation is it's breaking up a habitat into smaller pieces and that can cause issues because it might keep an animal from having access to as much of their food source or as much of of the rest of their population of species you know when you think about finding a mate and that sort of thing so habitat fragmentation is is breaking up that habitat into smaller pieces habitat degradation again it, it is what it sounds like it's a deterioration in condition of that habitat so when we talk about habitat loss what we tend to think about is just a total destruction right so i have a forest and i'm going to cut it down and i'm going to build a house right here and that's habitat loss but it, it doesn't have to be that. So anything that is going to degrade the quality of a habitat, even if you're not completely getting rid of that forest, if you're causing enough impact to make it unlivable for a species, that's kind of what we're talking about with habitat degradation. Yeah. And different animal species are, have different tolerances of changes in their habitat. Some animals really can thrive in altered habitats. You can think about things like raccoons and squirrels mm-hmm. where they're able to live alongside us because they're able to adapt to a different changes or need so few resources that they're able to live in an altered habitat, but others really need an intact habitat. And this starts to become an issue, especially when you think about like, let's let's say that you're looking at an intact forest along the edges of that forest, maybe as it transforms into meadows, you're going to have a different type of animal that lives in that edge habitat than you are in the very core of that habitat. So some of your more sensitive, larger animals might only exist in an area that's far away from any sort of disturbance or open area. But when you cut a road through it, even if that road is very small and narrow, you're actually having an impact because you've created more edge to that mm-hmm. habitat. There's less core habitat in the middle that can support those species. 
So this is going back to that 1% versus 20%, 20 right? Yeah. I, I just never thought it. about it that way. Yeah. Yeah. So we are talking about this impacting a much larger area than just that road itself mm -hmm. um, by dividing them. Also along the road itself, it's not like the trees are going to march right up to the edge of the forest right. or the or, or right up to the edge of the road. Right. You do have those kind of cleared out areas to help cars pull over and that changes the vegetation structure. So habitat fragmentation can affect animals in a lot of different ways. So in one way, as you pointed out, they need to find their daily food and resources to be able to survive. And so they may have to just cross the road in order to get to a river system, to be able to get to enough food to support them. And so it, it stops them from making both daily and then seasonal migrations too. They pointed out that some of our roads, a lot of our roads in the U.S. run from east to west. And a lot of animal migrations happen from mm -hmm. north to south, south mm -hmm. to north. So there's a lot of inherent road crossing coming just from the way that we travel and the animals travel opposite directions of each other. This also can stop gene flow. So uh, Sarah, what would be an issue for animals whose populations are separated? So, I mean, in terms of that, like you're just talking about if, if you've got a population separated and you're not going to be able to cross to find a mate, then you start to get to things more like inbreeding, so lack of genetic diversity, which can cause a number of issues, increased susceptibility to diseases and things like that. So this population bottlenecking in terms of genetics. That's right. And when that population is also split into smaller groups, they're more susceptible to localized extinctions. Mm -hmm. So think about an animal population where they can't get their genes across the, this barrier and barriers happen naturally. They could be rivers, they could be mountain ranges. Um, but in this case, the roads, if a population is not able to have genes transfer across this barrier, then they may not only become inbred, but also have a higher risk of just going extinct. And then that animal not being able to repopulate that area. Cause it was once all part of the same population. And in some studies, they did find that some male animals tend to be more likely to be roadkill, especially male giant ant eaters down in Brazil. And that's because they're looking for ladies. Yeah. So they're looking for love and that requires more roaming. And that means incidentally, they're going across roads and they're doing it very sporadically, which is uh, unfortunate because it's very difficult to stop them um, in a mm -hmm. more localized area. This also stops population drift in response to changing in resources. So especially climate change, some of our animals are going to be trying to go in the northern hemisphere farther north to try and get to a climate that is a little bit more what their historical average is because everything's getting warmer. That's going to be closer to the poles. But that also can be changes that happen naturally because of a local fruit source or, or prey species going extinct in one area, they're just going to naturally have to move to another. And now we have this barrier and it's not the same for all animals. As I pointed out, uh, when you set up a road and especially like different levels of road with different levels of traffic, mm -hmm. certain species can cross and certain species are just not going to be able to. So very small animals like salamanders and some species of insects that crawl on the ground, like beetles, they are going to have a much bigger issue crossing a road than a larger animal like a deer who can do so very, very quickly. Um, so you, what you end up is if you've got like a series of three different roads, they're going to be a series of different filters. And so while it used to be one maybe uniform ecosystem where there's same levels across the space, those roads are now going to change the predator and prey and different species interactions right. that happen in that area. 
So I found that really fascinating. It's thinking of them as not just barriers, but also filters for the ecosystem. And they did talk about how we're not really right now. We don't have enough papers that are out there about how it does change those impacts. That's just sort of more of a theoretical thought about it and something that they want to do more measuring. But altered habitat is still kind of created habitat in some ways. So clearing space can increase certain types of early succession plants. So basically when you clear an area, maybe there's a fire, uh, there are certain plants that are more prone to setting up shop and being like, cool, we're here, we're good. Grasses are a, a big part of that. And they come before trees, before these other species that might take more time to work their way into an area. And sometimes that's good for... Uh, certain species that feed on those, those animals. So in that core habitat of the forest, maybe some of those animals have left, but new ones, those edge species can kind of come on in and, and exploit more habitat. And the road could actually be a connector for their habitat because they can follow along the edge of it and be able to get from one place to another in a way that they would have had to encounter predators or a lack of resources before. Mm-hmm. However, if you've got more species hanging out there, these can also become roadkill and it can attract predators into the area. So both predators and scavengers can then become roadkill. And that's just like a compounding effect of attracting more animals to the road itself. I have a story about a bald eagle. Oh yes, I need to hear I've been teased about (laughs) this story. I need to hear the bald eagle story. So Andrew and I were driving along a road at an apartment that I used to live in. And as we're driving our little car, it's actually like a five lane road, but it's not a highway. It's actually a terrifying road to drive down because they changed which direction the middle goes depending on the time of day. Oh gosh. Yeah, it's awful. <laughs> so we were driving down it and right over top our car is a bald eagle gliding, just flying right over us. And we're just like, oh, majestic. <gasps> majestic who gets to see a bald eagle this close right like we get to see them in zoos but like very rarely up close in the wild Mm -hmm. and so it glides up in front of us and then it starts diving to the road because bald eagles are actually primarily scavengers and it was looking for roadkill and we had to throw on the brakes as soon as possible as to not murder our national bird that's horrifying <laughs> it went from like a oh how nice and naturally ex- oh, no. <laughs> just slamming on the brakes making sure we don't kill this bald eagle and it like i think we got close enough that it swooped then back up so that it wouldn't get oh, murdered by cars but gosh. yeah and that was in the middle of a major city in the yeah. u.s yeah it, wow. uh, so even some of our most treasured wildlife can be threatened in our cities by cars, not to mention in our national parks where you've got cars and things like that. So we did talk about noise pollution a little bit in episode eight and noise pollution can, as Sarah pointed out, impact birds' abilities to call. So we found that actually not just birds call higher when there is louder traffic, but we've also found that frogs do the same thing. Mm -hmm. Frogs also try and avoid roads. What we find is when frogs do come across roads, they are less likely to travel in a straight line. They are more hesitant. Like they're freaked out. They're scared. They don't understand how to traverse this new ecosystem. And the noise pollution can impact their ability to communicate with each other because they call just like birds for their mates. I won't go too deep into that because you should listen to episode eight and hear Sarah talk (laughs) all about it. Light pollution. How familiar are you with light pollution, Sarah? Uh, 
a little bit. I mean, I'm familiar with it as a concept, especially like living here in a city, like think about you go outside at night and look up at the sky and, you know, think about how many stars you can see. What we can see in most places, especially around cities, is just a tiny, tiny portion of what should actually be visible to us, but it's marred by the impacts of light pollution that we don't even, again, you know, I think much like noise pollution, we just, it's, we're sort of just used to it. Like this is, this is the way that it is. And we need lights to see at night. And we don't think about the, the other impacts that they might have. Um, so you think about, you know, environmental impacts in terms of, um, I know that it can impact migrating birds. I think the the probably like poster child for light pollution are sea turtles though. Oh, and I can't remember, yeah. was it the end of planet earth was, or the, I think it's the like nights in cities or something. I think it might be the planet at night. Okay. They, they might do it in both. David Attenborough tells yeah. you that <laughs> I was, I was complaining the other day to my parents that like, Hey, they always let the lions and the cheetahs go hungry in a lot of these documentaries. <laughs> you see them miss, but those poor baby cedar turtles are documentary <gasps> cannon fodder. They do not care <laughs> about showing them getting all ripped apart and <laughs> some speciesist issues. I personally feel like my life quality of life has decreased because of light pollution. I um, got to see all sorts of stars when we were in Hawaii. And then mm. even in college, we were traveling back from a tournament and I had been kicked in the head during a Quidditch tournament and was like very, very angry and focused on the fact that I could see so many stars down in like rural Southern Virginia. But the second we were going to get back to school, I would see none. It would be dumb. Um, and I still feel that way. And yeah. guess what? Up to 50% of our light pollution comes from our roadways, 35 to 50%. That I did not know dumb. <laughs> wow. Um, so as we talked about basically baby sea turtles, when they hatch out, they're like, Oh, the moon and they go towards the moon. But if there's other lights, they can also think that's the moon and they go the wrong way. That's also true of nesting females. If they get turned around mm -hmm. and it takes a lot of energy for them to lug their giant bodies out onto land. And so if they go the wrong direction, they have a higher chance of just not making it back to the ocean. So awful. Um, if you've ever seen your porch light attract a bunch of bugs. <laughs> Same thing, probably why we're having lots of bugs get hit by cars. Um, they're also prone to getting caught up there because now they're in a lighter area. So more predators are able to see them. They may just stick to that space and not feed themselves or rest in the light. And all of this can lead to a lot of insect mortality and birds deviate from their migration patterns when they're traveling. It kind of skews their idea of where the horizon is because of all the lights. It also artificially prolongs daylight for a lot of species. So you think about it, like, we don't like it to get dark. So we've lit all our roads. And again, that's important. We need right. it to be safe for road accidents and for it, it helps decrease crime rates in certain areas to have lit roads. But it also throws off the timing of breeding for certain species because they rely on the lengthening of days to show when it is time to get warm enough to be able to start reproducing. And now there's a bunch of light there. So it's confusing for them. So there are definitely ways that we can construct our lighting structures to have less light pollution, basically trying to aim the light more towards where we want. So we have right. less of this extra glow um, that not only takes away all my beautiful stars, but also does things like leak out over the roads into wildlife habitat as well. 
There's also pollution from fumes and salts, which I decided not to get too into today. And part of that has to do with the fact that I kind of want to cover it on a different episode or, or do a little section on it. And honestly, guys, part of it is that it's been a long week and this seems like it needed (laughs) more time. So fumes, exhaust pipes, animals living closer to roads are exposed to a lot more air pollution than those that don't live near roads. We salt our roads to prevent ice from building up important safety issues. However, that also runs off tires, break apart fluids leak onto the roads. Sarah talked about runoff the slacker sky. I think sustainability. We talked a little bit about that just pouring into our environment. So there's a lot of other pollution related issues and some of the pollutants that come off of there, I know impact frog metamorphosis time. Um, so yeah. So I wanted to spend a little bit more time on that because there's a lot of cool impacts. Not cool, but interesting, interesting. terrible yeah. impacts. <laughs> Look for that in a future episode. Yeah. So in the US, this results in over 1 million large animals. I don't know what they're calling large, but they consider large animals being killed every year. Again, one to two billion vertebrates, an innumerable amount of invertebrates just being killed directly, but also all of these other impacts that we have to think about when it comes to the population and community levels and species interactions around. So there, these are our problems presented to us. And of course, as long as there have been roads, basically, there have been people trying to study roadkill. They, they said before cars were commercially available, they had a scientist and his wife who were traveling and they decided to make just a little game of what species they found when they were traveling across the United States um, as roadkill. And in the 1950s, we had our first wildlife crossing and we've had a number of other measures that have been put into place to help re- reduce roadkill and facilitate safe crossings. So the first one is kind of obvious fences. I've definitely traveled down highways where they have like not, they have those big noise blockers on either side. Mm-hmm. I feel like I haven't seen that as much here in the Midwest, but on the East coast, they're kind of everywhere. It helps prevent some of the noise pollution into neighborhoods. I don't care about wildlife, but also they act as giant fences to prevent deer from running out onto the roadways. And so one European meta-analysis showed that fences were one of the best roadkill mitigation, especially when you consider the costs of them. They basically stop the wildlife from accessing the road and Mm -hmm. therefore there is no kill. You actually do need a bunch of different types of fencing to prevent different species from trying to cross the road um, because turtles and some other species can go under. Other species like deer or bears will climb or jump over the fence. So there's different types of fencing that they have suggested. Sarah, what are downsides of fencing? Well, I, would, I mean, some of the things that you just said would have been the first things to pop to mind is that, first of all, there are going to be some animals that are going to be able to traverse those fences in some way or um, or try to anyway. And, I'm, you know, there's got to be some, the cost and logistics involved of putting them up. But I mean, I guess I would also say fences would still be a barrier. So we're solving the collision problem, but we're not solving the habitat fragmentation, you know, splitting up populations, that sort of thing so much with the fences. That's right. Yeah. On the, the, the population level that is not helping our wildlife out, it is separating them depending on the type of road. Like if you've got a highway, you've got such a narrow chance of a animal being able to cross in the first place successfully, that maybe mm-hmm. that is a 
barring uh, a mm-hmm. different uh, different measure that we're ta- going to talk about a little bit later, barring a more intensive, more <laughs> expensive measure, fencing may be the best option because you're just trying to stop the wildlife from attempting to cross to help save people, sure. so help save loss of life. But when you've got like an eight lane highway, you do not want animals just trying to you're not going to have meaningful crossings. You're just going to have a lot of roadkill. Right. Um, so they tend to be actually a pretty cost-effective way of doing it. However, oh, and for some air from an, some animals like capybaras, for example, in the Brazil studies that I was looking at, they are more riverine animals. They are looking at rivers. So where the river was close to the road is most likely where they would have capybaras try and cross and capybaras were a huge issue for roadkill partially because they're, large animals but also if you hit a herd of capybaras they're the world's largest rodents you can die like that was a big issue in brazil that people were wow. looking at yeah who would have thunk right they're they're ginormous i just so. yeah i don't i just the thought of a herd of capybara crossing the road is not something that's ever entered my brain before well yeah <laughs> i definitely have driven in brazil so um so they found that for fencing, that's actually a really good solution for capybaras because there are very select locations that they're really tempted to cross the road and they're, they're just going to go a different way. Um, not necessarily cross the road, maybe go to a different part of their habitat if they're cut off from that easy section, but certain animals like maned wolves and anteaters, they don't choose to go in a very particular direction. Right. And so, so you'd they have are, to have extensive fencing. Yes. And we're talking about really large roads across the Cerrado, which is the Savannah habitat in Brazil. Like that's, it's just a really big area and we're losing out on that population genetic flow for those species. They have very low populations so that making sure that their genes are able to get to different areas are super important. Those dang male anteaters, they're searching for the ladies and they found like personality of animal matters too. Some of them are like a little bit bolder. And that can border into foolhardiness in some ways for them because they're more likely to get hit by roads, but some are by cars, but some of them are less likely to cross because they're a little bit more shy. They're scared away from the noises and they're more likely to lift, but also they're less likely to be able to meet across the barrier. Mm-hmm. So let's go to the next one. Uh, one of uh, a staple of my childhood, and I see them less here, but you do find them in Indiana is deer crossing signs seeing that yellow sign with the deer leaping Mm -hmm. up. What are the goals of that sign, Sarah? When you see that sign, what do they want you to do? Pay more attention, drive a little more carefully. Yeah. They want you to pay attention. They want you to slow down. Basically there's their deer in this area who may pass through what they found is, is that these are not very effective signs, um, because they might be effective at first, but if you travel through the area regularly and if you've you never hit the bear all deer, the time, yeah. yeah, you're just like, whatever, I've never hit a deer and they just become part of your environment. And if, especially if they put up lots of them, then you're even less likely to follow them because you're less likely to have seen it and correlated it with the deer. Right. So they're really widespread here in the U S but they have shown not to change behavior and actually don't seem to be effective in reducing wildlife collisions. But there is something you can combine them with. It's wildlife detection. So basically they have like lasers or motion sensors that if a wild, uh, an animal triggers it, it will set off flashing lights on those signs. Okay. And that is more likely to be effective to, to help reduce that mortality. Is that, I'm, I don't know that I've ever seen that. 
in use? I don't know that it's very widespread. Okay. The one thing I saw was from Minnesota and they have not just deer, but moose up there. <laughs> and if you get a mint right. moose, you are on the losing end of that yeah. one. So that that's one of the things they talked about is maybe removing them in some, these deer crossing signs and removing them in some areas, definitely not putting any more up and then using them in conjunction with these wildlife crossing devices. And I don't know if, even if they do have those, if like, I would know if it's just like flashing lights right. or like, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I would probably um, pay more attention though. Definitely than just lights, like a standalone, especially at night. There's just like the reflective mm-hmm. things. Um, but I've also seen a deer hit by a car and it was horrible. So also, uh, talking about animals that we've seen more of passed away than, than in real life, we went down to Southern Illinois and saw two road killed armadillos. Oh, wasn't expecting that in Illinois. Yeah. Um, but they are migrating up actually towards us. And so I was bummed not to see them in real life, but they're a little bit more, of uh, a nocturnal animal, I believe. Mm-hmm. Okay, good, good, good. I was uh, yeah, I think so. I did. I've seen them a, a few times living in Florida. Cool. All right. The really, really cool one though is nope. We're going to let, nope. I'm just using you now. <laughs> so instead of fences for insects, obviously they can go through fences, right? So instead you can use nets and in Taiwan, they have erected 13 foot tall fences along a highway where the purple crow butterflies migrate. And so those are actually kind of like their monarch butterflies over there. They're one of Taiwan's one of the few places you're going to see butterflies alive and, and around in the winter time. It's like Mexico with the monarchs, but they had a huge road that went through there and they found that they were losing out on loads of butterflies. So they erected these tall fences that would force the butterflies to, uh, with nets, um, to force the butterflies to fly higher. And that prevented a lot of roadkill. And once they hit like 500 butterflies a minute crossing this road, they actually shut down one lane of traffic to help the butterflies cross. 500 butterflies a minute? Yes. (laughs) I want to see that. That's a lot of butterflies. They're really pretty. They're kind of like a purple blue. It's really nice. Um, So it's cool that they have done it for insects. Yeah. Because I think most of us just be like, "Mm -hmm, bugs. But it's cool that that, that's something that, that that. this place in Taiwan has taken a solution. More on that in a future episode too, by the way. Yeah. Okay. Now the cool one. Wildlife crossing structures, I think are cool. I think they're the coolest thing. The first one was built in France in the 1950s to help deer cross roads. And since then, they've really exploded in popularity across Europe. There's actually over 600 of these in the Netherlands alone, which is awesome. Basically, these are over or underpasses that allow wildlife to cross the road at certain areas. And they're specifically for wildlife crossings. And it helps these animals on a population level be able to still access different parts of their habitat, find mates, migrate, do whatever things they need. And so that's pretty cool. Yeah. The most famous one in North America is Banff National Park. I believe that's in Canada. And the reason it's the most famous is that they have an extensive network and it's been really, really well studied and really, really successful. So they have seen that through this study that different animals actually prefer different ways to cross the road. So grizzly bears, elk and deer and moose like the big 
open overpasses. So basically it's like a big bridge, but it looks like natural habitat. And these are animals that do move through open habitats like meadows. And so they're really comfortable going through this area. To clarify, in these areas, they will fence off other parts of the road to sort of funnel Mm -hmm. the wildlife towards the appropriate crossing area. They have found that actually, if you just put up a crossing area with no fences, there's actually in some studies more roadkill than if you don't put up the fences at all. Yeah. So, um, some studies said that it doesn't really make a difference basically to have a wildlife crossing structure. If there's no fences and other ones have shown, they think that there's more roadkill. So certain species like to move in the over ones, but other species like black bears and pumas, cougars, mountain lions, whatever you want to call them, prefer Mm -hmm. underpasses with more cover, which I thought was cool because like black bears and grizzly bears prefer different habitats. They're both bears, but they've been able to track them with wildlife cameras and using tracks. And a 2014 study in BAMP looked at DNA obtained from black bear hair samples and camera trap data. And they actually put out a long line of barbed wire and the bears would go past and their hair would get snagged on it. Mm -hmm. And they showed that the females prefer the overpasses, but the males preferred the underpasses. That's cool. (laughs) Um, And we found some species are really quick to adapt these. So they found in new ones that they're building in like California and Washington, they found coyotes and deer are like, cool, thanks. Like construction equipment still on the overpass. And they're like, yep, I'm using this space. Other animals take a little bit more time to get used to it and especially small species, but by other animals using that area and leaving behind their scents and tracks, you're more likely to have natural species flow because they're just kind of following each other's resources. And they've even set up things like little mounds for cover for animals like shrews and mice so that they can make their way across the thing. So every kind of species level fish use underpasses, amphibians use underpasses. So these are really amazing structures that when utilized correctly, along with fencing can still help wildlife move more naturally. Obviously there's a huge, huge drawback to these. They're very expensive to build. Um, They're way less expensive to build if you plan to build them in the first place. But when you're trying to retrofit things, it is extremely expensive to add in a really large thing. Now, if you compare that to accidents that are caused by motor vehicles, oftentimes those costs actually offset each other because once you take into account, not just the vehicle damage, but also the medical bills that people have to pay, it -hmm. actually can offset itself pretty easily. But, you know, we're not really always good at counting those costs as community costs. They end up falling on the unlucky victim. Right. But they have been used all over the world. Did you have something to add? Well, no, I, I was just going to say, I do think these are so cool. And while Casey's been talking, I was Googling some photos and I love to see it's it's just, yeah, look them up, look up the pictures to kind of see what we're talking about. I I think these are amazing and I, I would love to see them be more commonplace you know, I, and this is something I've, I've talked about in the past. I've talked about this at previous jobs and things like that, but I've always sort of talked about them without ever really even seeing one. Now, granted, sometimes I've probably driven past some without even noticing it before, but I would love to just see them more commonplace. And I think, yeah, the cost side of it is, is probably a huge one. And I don't want to downplay that cost is it's a, barrier. a factor and we need yeah. to be able to pay for things, but also 
I think, you know, in terms of nature and sustainability, sometimes we, we just have to recognize that the cheapest thing isn't always the best thing. I wish we could get a little more in that mindset. Again, not diminishing the fact that yes, like we need to be able to pay for things, but um, just but, but I our think mindset a, a little bit. Yeah, you're at the junction, I think, of one of the big challenges of sustainability is right. that our economy oftentimes takes costs on a short-term basis or like does yeah. a risk assessment. And a lot of sustainability things can be quantified in more of a long-term sort of way. So yeah, the, the long-term impacts of separating populations can be extinction and inbreeding. And it, if, again, we've talked about this before, if then that species becomes endangered, it is so much more expensive to right. try and bring them back than it would have been to install some of these mitigation efforts in the first place. Other places around the world have done it for lots of other species. In Australia, they actually have an overhead rope bridge that allows opossums and gliders to cross dangerous That's roads. Awesome. In Brisbane, yeah. And there's underpasses that have been used in Kenya to connect two parts of an elephant habitat. Yeah. So biggest land mammal in, in the world, traveling from Mount Kenya in the highlands, um, now connected to a habitat down in the lowland forests. And it was interesting in the article I read, it's about a nine mile corridor that they, it was in 2011 that they first saw some elephants pass through the underpass, which is a pretty big deal. Wow. But also like a local farmer had to give up his land to oh make that gosh. happen. But I mean, he gave up a lot of acres. He still has some of his mm -hmm. land. And one of the things that he said is like, I've had conflicts with them in the past, like elephants eating my crops, mm -hmm. but I am overjoyed to be able to be part of this process of being able to allow them to move freely. And because there's fences, it then also helps mitigate some of his risk from the other parts of his land. So this is all to say India and China also have elephant passageways as well. I'm sure there's countless awesome. examples. And if you are a listener who happens to live near one of these and you've got pictures or any sort of stories, please, please. send them our way because yeah. they are not very common in the U S but this is all, all this is to say is that this is a lot easier moving forward than it is kind of looking backwards is as we build new infrastructures. One of the things they talked about is in areas where they had bats or gliding animals, having large trees in the median spaces when they were building roads was one way to connect their habitat instead of forcing them to be across really large open areas. When we build roads, having underpasses ready for reptiles and amphibians and all sorts of cool animals is an important part of making sure that we can maintain these species and be proactive in their conservation instead of being reactive. Mm -hmm. And we might feel like roadkill is kind of inevitable. And it, to a certain extent, is just the places we live. To a certain extent, roadkill is inevitable, but the levels of roadkill right. that it, we experience are actually very controllable. Um, it's just going to take more than just one person. And in one town in Massachusetts, there was bucket brigades of trying to bring like frogs across roads. And so there's also community efforts that yeah. people can do. Some, some roads do shut down occasionally to allow wildlife to just pass through, especially for amphibians who do struggle a lot with crossing those barriers. That's a really good way for them to be able to, especially during the breeding season, get across some of these barriers. And I do have some good news. The Senate Committee on the Environment and Public Works passed a bipartisan Surface Transportation Reauthorization Act of 2021 <laughs> here in the U.S. that boosts funding to the Department of Transportation over the next five years, and it includes money for wildlife crossings. Yay! And this was passed by 
a unanimous bipartisan support in awesome. this committee, which oh. is perhaps the rarest thing that you can see in Congress. <laughs> so, so, I mean, like wildlife is positive is this is, that's obviously a small part of the money that is in that bill, but it is in there and it yeah. is something to be aware of and something, if someone's building a new road in your community to ask questions about, Hey, what does this do for the habitat? Could we just put a culvert in right underneath to help the frogs pass? We have influence on that. So that's, I learned a lot during the research of this episode and I hope that you did too. Sarah, do you have anything to add before we head to our take-home action? No, I, but I did learn a lot. And I think again, you know, this is some wildlife crossings are a thing I have been aware of, but I think, yeah, this was really interesting, Casey. And some of the things that you presented made me just more aware of impacts, made me think about things a little differently. And again, roads are an integral part of our daily lives. And I don't think we often stop to think about how this is impacting wildlife. So yeah, I think this was a, a really great topic, really interesting. All right, stay tuned and we'll come back with our take-home action. All right, and we're back for our challenge of the week. Every week we assign you something that you can do to help out with the topic that we just talked about. We suggest. We suggest, we you're right. Assign, right? You're right. We're not teachers. We're informal educators. And you're listening to this in your free time and we appreciate that. <laughs> um, we do hope that you'll take action yes, though. We hope please. that you'll be inspired and we recognize that these are not all things possible for all people. And especially like a given week, it might not be the time. And if you've been listen to our podcast, you know, we fail at these sometimes too. <laughs> and so your take-home action for the week, this kind of standard challenge is to look up what you can do locally to get roadkill removed. And I know this sounds a little tangential, but basically like that bald eagle was flying low because there was a dead squirrel yeah. or a dead something in the middle of the road. Um, so actually a buildup of roadkill can actually impact other species, drawing them closer to the road and really cool animals like vultures and eagles and coyotes can be drawn into situations where they can become roadkill themselves because of this. I guess another side thing is don't throw fruit out the window because yeah. that's another thing that can draw people or draw animals to roads is yeah, it's going to decompose and it's going to take a while and it can attract other animals and they can become roadkill too. So uh, there should be some place that helps you clean up roadkill. So I looked up ours. We have um, our mayor action line that we can go to to submit a request to get roadkill removed on our highways or our roads. Um, so I now know how to do that. If you are in beast mode challenge and really beast mode has nothing to do in this case with like your willingness to help. This really has to do with the opportunities that you come <laughs> across. Um, in North America right now, we are in the middle of turtle and tortoise kind of not migration maybe, but our, our animals are becoming more active movement, because it's yes. warm. It's movement. So you're more likely to see them starting to try and cross the roads. Um, so if you get a chance to help an animal cross the road, so whether that means like stopping your car or physically assisting them, your primary directive is to be safe. That is yes. the primary thing we want you to come away with. So do not try and cross the six lane highway trying to get ducks or something like be safe. But if you have the opportunity to help an animal out, 
that's something that you can help with turtles in particular. I'm going to give you a quick way of how to do that. If you see a turtle trying to cross the road, determine that it is safe for yourself to assist and you're going to pull over to the side of the road. You're going to determine which direction the turtle is heading. Do not try and turn the turtle around because the turtle knows where it's going. So Eastern box turtles here in the US, you can take them like eight miles away from their habitat and they are more likely than not to find their way back home. So if you try and relocate this turtle, it will still try to come back to the spot. So just trust the turtle. It knows where it's going. So you're, if it, it needs to cross to the other side of the road, you can determine that it's safe. If it is a small turtle that is not a snapping turtle and you can safely do it, you can do a hamburger hold. So you hold it like a hamburger and you will walk it across the road. If it is a snapping turtle or a large turtle tortoise that you don't feel comfortable getting too close to its mouth, you can grab the top of its shell right behind its back feet, like right above that. And you can walk it like a wheelbarrow to the other side of the road. And that's how you can assist. You don't have to pick it up with a shovel or anything like that. If you have gloves, extra great. Make sure you're carrying hand sanitizer with you or a way to wash your hands because you're interacting with wild animals and we want to make sure that they stay safe and you stay safe. But that is a way to help a turtle, which is one of the more common animals you're going to see across the road. Awesome. Thanks, Casey. That was fantastic. I really appreciate it. And I mean, I don't know, I guess I sort of hope I don't have the opportunity. Yeah, I hope none of you do. But if you do, (laughs) (laughs) we'll be ready. Well, thanks everyone for listening. And again, give us a subscribe, give us a rating or review. Let us know what you think. Let us know if you did your challenge. Yeah, we appreciate your support very much. And, you know, we love getting the tags. We love getting the emails and seeing and hearing about what you all are doing. So thanks for joining us. Thanks for listening. And we'll join you again next week. Bye.